Our liberties we prize and our rights we will maintain. This is Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast, where we tell stories about the contribution Iowans and the state of Iowa has made to advance the civil rights movement. Past stories are being told, present actions will be highlighted, and preparation for the future will be discussed. Here is your host, Eric Nyange. Welcome to the Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast. On March 8, 1857, a widespread violence broke out between the settlers and Native Americans in a Sprit Lake, Iowa, which led to about 33 people dead. So what led to that violence and why the Native Americans were so furious and they decided to lash out to the settlers? My guest today is Professor Kevin Mason. He's the history professor at Waldorf University. And he spent a lot of time studying and writing about this story. Professor, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Eric. Really yeah. excited to be here. Thank you. Born and raised in Mason City or born and, born and raised in Pella? Oh, you both, both places little, or Forest City? A little bit City? of both. So I was okay. born in Forest City. My dad coached basketball, college basketball. That's a job where you move a little bit. We were in Forest City when I was really young. I barely even remember living there. Then we were in Mason City for a little while. And then he ended up uh, coaching basketball for probably about 12 years down at Central College in Pella. I was in Pella for most of my childhood. I was there like second grade through high school. High school. And then I came back to go to Nyack. But I also came back and was then um, and actually is currently the athletic director out at Nyack. So it's nice. We got our family here. My wife's from Mason City. So it's been a really nice home for us in North Iowa. You got your AA from Nyack, then you went to North Dakota? Yeah, I ended up, uh, Nyack, really great fit for me. I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I went to college. Ended up in a history class out there. I think with where our conversations may be going today is mm-hmm. important to think about. I took an American Indian history class just because I had to take a history class. I was doing like biochemistry or... That was your original? Yeah, path. that's what I was thinking I was going to do. Oh, and wow. I like... I did fine in those classes and stuff, but I really didn't like any of the work. And as I kind of went through that experience, I don't know, I just took this history class by chance and I was just doing all this extra work for it. And I was just really into it. Um, I didn't really see a pathway for like what I could do with history. Then I ended up in North Dakota. I went to a college where they didn't even have history as a major. Oh, really? (laughs) Um, But I was able to do like social and behavioral sciences. So I got a lot of like broad stuff. I was able to do like political science and some history and some geography, all those kind of things. Um, Also kind of got my first history job up there. I was working for the Fort Abraham Lincoln Foundation, which allowed me to uh, kind of, again, continue to get this window into just a lot of different sides and perspectives of history. Living in Iowa, we have vibrant indigenous communities with the Meskwaki people down in Tama and, and other indigenous peoples living in the state. But it's different than like the culture in the Dakotas where they have huge proportions of their population are native. Oh, okay. And so like I got this job at the Fort Abraham Lincoln Foundation, which is kind of a weird place to work. So like that's where Custer left for the Battle of Little Bighorn, like from Fort Abraham Lincoln. So one side of that park is like, everybody that's really interested in George Armstrong Custer goes on vacation and like the people dress up in like the uniforms from the 1800s oh, really? and I wasn't trying to do all that. <laughs> so like I ended up uh, working the other side of the park though is Mandan Honest Land Village, which is tied to the Mandan people, which 
I'm really grateful for that experience because like my first day of work there, I had to give tours of this native village to a group of kids from the Standing Rock Reservation School. And it really taught me like, I don't know, it's so complex. And I think you understand this because what you do where it's like, when you're dealing with paths that are different than your own and different perspectives and some of that, there's so much respect that has to go into that. Yes. And you have to really, I think I was, I'm so grateful for that experience early in my career where it just taught me that like, I can learn about anything, but I'm going to have to learn about it through that different lens. Yeah. And I have to really, really take the time yeah. to get to understand people's perspectives. And then just like, at the end of the day, like really, really put the work in to understand, like do my due diligence in terms of just really knowing my stuff yeah. where it's like, I can have a conversation with anybody about anything as long as I know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think like that experience really taught me uh, that because I spent yeah some time working there, ended up going to Wayland Baptist University, got my master's in, in uh, American history, and then came back here to North Iowa. I was coaching basketball at Nyack as an assistant coach. And then Ended up at Waldorf uh, about 10 years ago. Um, kind of took a yeah. flyer there. I had this master's degree in history. Took a job in admissions. Um, but kind of just hoping they'd give me like a shot at one class. I was like, if it, I don't know. Like history class to yeah, teach? Yeah, yeah. I, okay. I just wanted a shot. Yeah. You know? like, but it's a hard field to crack into. Mm. All that stuff. So I went like, you know, I'm just going to be there. And then I'm going to do everything in the community. I'm going to do whatever I can. Like I kept doing research. I kept going to conferences and just really tried to like, I don't know. I love history. I I think about it as like, I'm I'm one of those, I work all the time, but I never really work because I just kind of do stuff that I find interesting. Interesting. And so eventually what happened was like, they get in a pinch in the middle of the year after I'd been there, maybe like nine months. And they're like getting ready to start the spring semester. And the Dean of the time, David Bailing, he comes down to my boss and he's like, Hey, we know this guy's got the master's degree. We know we can teach whatever, whatever. We really want to give him a shot to try this out for one class. And I'm like, yeah, this is going to be it. My boss says, no. He's like, yeah, you know, he's too valuable to the team here. We really need him to be like recruiting these people. And I'm (laughs) like, I'm in the back like, no, no, no. We want him to keep doing what he's doing. (laughs) He's like, he's too good at it. It's like, oh, (laughs) I don't know. I was so mad. Yeah. <laughs> like, cause you kind of go through it and I, I appreciate his perspective. You know, nobody owes you any opportunity. Yeah, that's true. And I, I didn't go there. He didn't tell me if I hire you for this job, maybe you'll get You're a gonna, chance yeah. to. And so like, it didn't work out that semester. But then as we went into the next year, they kind of continued to have this need. And then I got my shot. They were like, all right, now we think you figured out like you're, you're good at your job. Yeah. We think you can balance both things. We'll give you one class. Oh man. Abbey Gardner. Abbey Gardner. The, the Spirit Lake Massacre. Yeah. 1857. March 8th. March 8th. Okay. So this happened at the Arnold Park in Okoboji? Sure. Yeah. If you're at the amusement park, you could probably like throw a rock and hit the Abbey Gardner house. I don't oh, know wow. if you've been out there. I've, I've, been, to, I've been to that cabin. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. I went there and I, I visited that cabin. But uh, again, I went there before I even kind of read the history in depth. Yeah. So that's the danger of it. Well, so they're I missed, working on I missed it. a lot of things. They, and they're doing a lot of work out there. The Friends of the Abbey Gardner Sharp Cabin and Dickinson County, and then the State Historical Society of Iowa, which actually owns the property. We spent, man, a few weeks out there, and they've been working on 
like interpretation plans. They've incorporated a lot of indigenous voices in that to try mm. to be better represent the other parts of that story that haven't really been told okay. as loudly or at all. They're really working on that out there. Cause like I take it for granted. Cause like I spent five years of my life obsessed with that. So it's like I go and whenever I go, whoever's with me, it's hard for them to think about the interpretation. Cause I like, if you and I were going to leave right now and go out there, I have a whole tour. What led that massacre? Change, you know, there's a lot of different things that go into this. Right. And it's like, I've written extensively about it. How I think about it is that there's like four frontiers that are moving across Iowa during the 1800s. And like some historians take, we, we all know what a frontier is. The American government's talking about as frontiers people. I think about frontiers as existing even before the Americans arrived between indigenous peoples. They're competing for control of land and natural resources. Mm. As we start to see that change, we see a governmental frontier come in, right? Which is going to be first treaties, which oftentimes are negotiated in languages that people don't understand for dubious purposes, yeah. uh, to put it mildly. And then we also see native people put in a position where they're uh, like being treated like they're going to take whatever deal they're given, no matter what, and they don't have a choice in the situation. And like the Dakota people in particular, which people commonly call the Sioux, are the most powerful people in this part of the country. They're incredibly more militarily powerful than the Americans in this like early 1800s. Oh, wow. We see that with the Sauk and Meskwaki in Iowa as well. Like the War of 1812, uh, Black Hawk and a combined force of Sauk and Meskwaki shut down the upper Mississippi River, and the Americans try to retake uh, what's called Fort Crawford at Prairie du Chien twice. They can't make it through the Quad Cities because the native presence is so thick they've shut down the river. Oh, like, wow. It's one of the things that we don't think about is like how powerful, and we've been conditioned to do that, I think, by, I think of it as like by Western civilization, by yeah. our educational upbringing, whatever it is, where it's like, it's easy to forget that like, so Ink Paduta is going to be the villain and the story that most story, people tell yeah. about Spirit Lake. And I got really interested in Ink Paduta because he started to show up over here. Like he uh, captured two men over on the Shell Rock River, kind of over by like uh, Rock Falls. Oh, he came this far? Yeah. Oh, and wow. I started to go like, huh. Well, actually, really, where I got interested in this was I was sitting in my office looking at the Winnebago County Courthouse and thinking about how the Winnebago people never lived in Winnebago County. And I was like, well, I wonder why that is, like mm. that we would call it that. And so then I started to dig on it. I realized that the Dakota, um, which people commonly call the Sioux, the Dakota would, I think they've been like written out of our history after what happens in Spirit Lake in 1857. Mm. And so when I went to Iowa State, I knew I needed to start researching something, some kind of contribution to the historical record because that's how you get a PhD. And I just wanted to know, like, who lived here and all the research I was doing kept leading me back to Ink Paduta and the Dakota people. And even like his uh, father and uh, the people that held power in what's called his Tayoyaspe or band before him, which is like Wamdasapa, they're exercising power across this area in an incredible way. And I think Ink Paduta is incredibly representative of the story of change that's taking place here across his lifetime. He's born somewhere in North Iowa, Southern Minnesota in the early 1800s. And over the course of his life, he sees first original kind of American inroads into society. The first treaty signed in 1825 at Prairie du Chien, 
the people that are leading the band that is eventually going to attack Spirit Lake um, signed the treaty mm-hmm. in 1825. The next year, one of the men who signed it, his wife's killed in a sock raid. Heads chopped off, thrown in a river, according to the accounts of the Indian agent at Fort Snelling. Because he goes and he asks the American government, well, we signed your agreement. What are you going to do to protect my family? My wife's dead. The Indian agent tells him, like, there's nothing I can do about that. We can barely protect the fort up here yeah. at Fort Snelling in the Twin Cities. Yeah. Like, we so can't. This, this was the contract was signed between the settlers. So this is between the American government. This okay. is what, what would be called the first multinational treaty of Prairie du Chien in 1825. And William Clark, like from Lewis and Clark, yeah. uh, the big expedition, he's going to oversee this treaty proceedings, him and a guy okay. named Lewis Cass, at Prairie du Chien over on the Mississippi River. And they bring together all of the native people that they can gather from the upper Midwest. And in Clark's journal, he talks about like, we want to put down boundaries between these peoples. That's the first goal because they want to limit violence. And then also there's the added benefit of once they kind of, it's a divide and conquer strategy. Once we draw lines on the map, then I can go one people at a time and write new treaties that are then going to minimize their land claims and push them further West. And so like, 1825, we see Tisagi and Wamdasapa from what's uh, called the Wapakute, Dakota. They sign. Then we have this uh, problem with the SOC, which is going to not be handled. And they decide we're not going to sign any more treaties with the American government. Mm. They start just rejecting American power. And they're powerful enough to do it here. Oh, wow. Until 1857. Oh, maybe slightly before that. Because then yeah. we move through this whole era of like, once you have treaties, then you have forts. That's the second part of this governmental frontier because you need to be able to project that military power. Otherwise, people aren't going to live there. People won't mm. live places they don't feel safe. And so they build forts, right? In Iowa, we have first Fort Des Moines. Then yeah. we're going to move to uh, Garrison Rock, which is down by Ottumwa, which is called Fort Sanford. Then we have second Fort Des Moines. Then we have Fort Dodge. Mm. And it's moving up the Des Moines River and across as this happens over the course of the 1800s. And they're going to abandon Fort Dodge in the early 1850s, move it to Fort Ridgely in Minnesota, which signals the next frontier is ready to open, which is the population frontier. This is what most people would talk about as the frontier. Okay. This is where, like, the American government always talked about the frontier being two people per square mile. Because once you get to a certain number of people, you have strength in numbers. You can form a local militia and Mm. you can protect yourself. And so, like, when that fort moves in the early 1850s, it moves into Minnesota. The Dakota people have largely been put on reservations, except for bands like Ink Padutas that have rejected American power over the previous couple of decades. The government's construed them as renegades or outcasts, but it's, they're outcasts from the people that are signing agreements that are putting their people under reservations. Yeah. And so it's like it, it becomes— So they did not want to be in a reservation— they didn't want to recognize American power. Oh, like they, they went I like, see. we are the powerful the people power, yeah. here. We're sovereign. We control this land and natural resources. Yeah. And Not this you. is where it's like, you see in Paduta, like I found him in 29 different Iowa counties, um, stretching from the Shell Rock river all the way over to like Sioux city and yeah. Woodbury County. And, and he, he was the main chief. By the time, of, of, but by 1857. Okay. So, like, power's passing through this. It's going to pass to a guy named Sidomenaduta before him who's going to be killed. A lot of people talk about that's why Spirit Lake happens. 
is that it's revenge for them. Mm. But there's like a there's like a gap of three years, and it's inconsistent with like how Dakota revenge raids work. Whatever. I mean, we could get really lost in the. We got yeah. the three hundred pages we could go into, <laughs> but it's like. As we get closer to this, Inkpaduta is watching this population frontier pile in. People arrive here in Mason City, where we're at, in like 1856. We start to see more and more people piling into this area where the Dakota have just been living and able to move through uncontested for decades, yeah. if not hundreds of years. It's one of the things that like we take a lot of pride in. Like, like in Iowa, we talk about century farms. You know, you've been on the same farm for 100 years. And it's like at Spirit Lake, one of the things I always like to ask people when I'm talking out there is like, anybody live on a century farm? It's like, what would you do if you came home later after this talk and like you went into your kitchen and somebody was like making a sandwich, they just moved in. They're big gun people out there. So they're like, ah, I'd kill them. And you're like, "Ah." I don't know if it's that different than like, so Ink Peduta is certainly, uh, one of the things that my research showed is that as he kind of gains uh, control over this band of the Dakota, he is summering at Spirit Lake. They're living there in the summer. They're spending the winter by what's eventually called Smithland on the Little Sioux River down by the Missouri River, which is right by Sioux City. And they're just moving as they had been moving for... hundred Yeah, yeah. Who, who knows years. how yeah. much time. Um, they've... Like, it's not easy to live here. Like, winter is a real thing yeah. that comes every year. And as more people are moving in on this population frontier... It's also taxing the national environment and starting to change it. This is the first place I got really interested in this environmental change. Because you think about like even the animals that like we take for granted in Iowa today, like we completely removed deer from the state in the late 1800s, and then they've just been reintroduced since like 1915. Like even uh, turkeys were completely destroyed in Iowa, yeah. and then we started reintroducing them in the 1970s. Like most of the animals, and like let alone buffalo let alone elk, let alone the things that the Dakota actually like use to live on a day-to-day basis, as well as like the plants and other things that were just natural to the environment and that they maintained or planted in the environment are going to be completely wiped out as we see this population frontier move in. Americans are moving here, build farms. Mm. And you think about like, that's going to change this surface more than maybe anywhere on earth. Yeah. Now more people are moving in the area. So maybe I guess there's a need for more food, killing the animals. Sure. And that's one of the things we're going to see is that as more people are moving into the area, I would argue that behind that population frontier comes an environmental frontier. I've been thinking about this a lot lately is four frontiers that we start with indigenous frontiers. Then we have these governmental frontiers that are treaties and forts. And we have population of people moving in then those people create a frontier that changes the world around them and it changes the plant life and the animal life. They're hunting animals in incredible numbers. Like it's wild. Like North Iowa, where we live now used to be the greatest waterfowl production site on planet earth. Like one guy shot 5,000 ducks on the pass between East O uh, East Okoboji Lake and West Okoboji Lake across one fall. Like, it's wild to think about how, like, as this was giant wetlands before we start draining, ditching, tiling, that stuff, and, like, completely remake this. It just was a completely different place to live. And so, like, as these people come, they're changing the environment around them. And I don't fault those people for doing it. You know, we're all making decisions to look out for what's best for us based on the information we have 
yeah. and the opportunities in front of us. And as those people will show up in Iowa, they are starting to radically remake the world around Ink Peduta. Harder to feed the people that he's living mm. or leading and also harder for them to just passively resist kind of the American government because the government wants them on the reservations in Minnesota. They want them to eventually go yeah. and be a part of that system. So they're going to make hard for them to be there. And they like are kind of willing to let these people linger. Like that's one of the things that like I look at Spirit Lake as being not a massive miscommunication, but it is a big misunderstanding in a lot of different ways. And then it's a lot of bad things coming together at the wrong time, mm. which is a lot of moments in history that become cataclysmic to the point of where like one of the reasons why like I usually won't talk about it as like being a massacre because I think sometimes when people talk about massacres, they like are saying it was completely unprovoked and like you couldn't have seen it coming. You know, like you just show up and oh, kill everybody. Yeah. And that is how a lot of people out that way talk about this event. They're like, Ink Peduta was bloodthirsty. He was a person that was just like out to like destroy white people. Mm. And like, I promise you, I mean, I never knew the guy, but that's not true. He watched the world change around his people and was trying to lead them in this way. And things got really, really difficult for them. And then the winter of 1856-57 hits. And it's the worst winter we had for at least 150 years. And like as that's happening, we have this population building in. It's the first time people, like the Gardner family, are moving to the Iowa Great Lakes. So Roland Gardner is an interesting guy, mm -hmm. Abby's dad. Yeah. He's living in New York. He works at a comb factory when he gets married. And then he like has a couple of kids, decides to move out to the frontier. Abby describes him in her book as like a wide awake man, like representative of the age, always following the frontier. Yeah. And he moves out and he actually comes here to Saragoto County first. Oh, okay. They settled at Clear Lake. Was, was he part of the American government? The Gardner? No, he's just a farmer. You know, he's Farm. like, he's just a guy looking to live, yeah. you know, like find a better life for his family, which is one of the things that I think is important to understand in this story is that like, or in any historical story is like, you got to try to put yourself in everybody's shoes as you roll through it. And like, so Roland Gardner comes out here looking for a better life for his family. He goes to clear Lake. He's like one second too late. A lot of the good pieces of land are already bought up around the lake. He spends a year there. He gets a less than desirable piece of land. Abby's father and her family, they're coming out here and they come and settle. And actually the initial community at clear Lake where they, farm for a year and then they he keeps hearing from this guy joseph hewitt about that there's these lakes out beyond the frontier mm. unoccupied you know the government's got rid of the fort at fort dodge they've moved to minnesota this is the next place that's going to be open this is where you got to be you know opportunity and i could see where roland gardner would go i already came out here from new york i got to clear lake a minute too late all right i'm not gonna wait I'm going to go yeah, and I'm going to get the best piece of land. And like, by all accounts, like Arnold's park, still pretty good land yep. prices probably. Yep. So he goes out there in late, late 1856. So they arrive right before this terrible winter hits, which they leave late enough that they're not growing crops that year. Mm. They're going to ride it out with the stuff he bought from Joseph Hewitt here in Mason city. And they got the ledger of Joseph Hewitt's uh, trading post at the uh, public library in the archives. And so you can like see what he bought. And they went out there and they're like going to try to ride this out with like, not just like an like small family of like him, his wife, he's got three uh, kids with him. Plus one of his other daughters and her husband eventually come as well. 
They're all living in that yeah, one little, little, little cabin. cabin. Wow. <laughs> and then they have no way to know, but it's the worst winter we're going to have for like 150 years. And like, you can see it. Like one of the things I did when I was working on my dissertation was I went through like what people call dendrochronology. It's like tree ring data. You can see how bad that winter was in like oak trees that were alive then. Oh, wow. And you can look at all the reports from different people and see how terrible it was. And as this happens, Roland Gardner showed up at Spirit Lake. He doesn't know this is where Ankh-Paduta Summer Village is. I mean, he knew the Dakota were in the area. The Dakota had come to Clear Lake and pushed the Ho-Chunk out. That's a whole other story. But they're certainly, like, around. So this guy is very innocent. He does not even know what is brewing at this See, time. See, that's where it's like, I don't know. I think he's placing a bet. I, oh. think, I think he knows that, like, there's still there's Native people conflict. around. And there's the potential for conflict. Yeah. And I think, like, that's another, like, empathy point of, like, White people living on the frontier <laughs> lived in fear of indigenous the communities. Native, yeah. That was like the cultural aspect. Like you could watch Little House on the Prairie and learn that. And while he's settling in there for the winter with his family and they're betting that their supplies are going to last out and they're going to be able to hunt enough. And like Inkpadut is down at Smithland where he's been spending the winter and he had been on this one farm uh, for the previous years. I actually think he was probably on that farm like well before Americans arrived and then the guy moved there and let him continue staying there. That guy had sold his land though in the previous summer and moved to Sioux City into town. And from the onset of when the Dakota arrive at Smithland in 1856 in the fall, there's problems. Mm -hmm. There's more people living there because this population frontier is building. There's a like big community of people that come from the eastern United States and kind of build a village there. There's a big prairie fire late in the fall that burns all their hay. So they're not going to be able to feed their animals over the winter. And those bad winter hits. We start to see these two communities that can't communicate. They speak literally different languages mm. wow. and have all of these preconceived notions about each other going back and forth and we see things escalating and escalating and escalating. Like there's a, several different incidents over the course of the fall and the early winter to the point of by February, the American settlers at Smithland come out and they form a militia and they like put on like military uniforms from like the war of 1812. And they confront Inkpaduta's village at Smithland and they tell them you're going to give us your guns and you're going to leave into the worst winter in 150 years. Oof. And Inkpaduta leaves but they, he, he knew it was going to come back. He wasn't coming back there. They were also struggling oh. through this winter, right? Yeah. So, like, there were a few of the men that were with him were out hunting. So, like, they had some guns. They eventually meet up with them. They start moving up the Little Sioux River, which eventually goes to Spirit Lake. So, it's like, I think it's like 115 miles. I don't know. When I walk yeah. it someday for that project, we'll figure it out. <laughs> so, but, why, why did America settlers kick them out? Just, like, the conflicts. They said, like... I mean, and I've read all the letters related to it. I know people whose, like, ancestors were these people, like, at, on both sides, yeah. which is wild to think about. Like, I've just been turning over enough stones that it's like, ah, I've heard both sides of the story from, <laughs> from like, both family <laughs> histories. Um, I hope they don't still have a bad blood. Actually, yeah. I, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I, haven't, I haven't got them in the same room. But I do think, uh, like, I, I would say, like, I think where the bad blood is is probably – warranted on like Inkpaduta's descendants. I think they have something because these, because this militia people of Smithland, I 
the more I've studied this, the more I don't think like, I can't, I wasn't there. I don't, I don't know what they were living through. I don't know what their level of fear was like. I don't think that it was reasonable. They will say that they wanted to like, they thought Ink Paduta and the Dakota would leave and go into Nebraska and stay with like the Ponca there or other uh, like indigenous groups. But that's also like ethnocentric and people looking at it like, oh, well, these native people just go with these other native people, not recognizing yeah. like the divisions between different tribal groups and whatever. And it's crazy to think that you're going to kick somebody off their land and they're going to go quietly. And they kind of didn't go quietly. Like yeah. they left. They met up with this hunting party that had been out and they start moving up the Little Sioux River and they're moving towards Spirit Lake. Like yeah. one of the, the things is like Okaboji allegedly in the Dakota language, or at least how people, why it got named Okaboji was it supposed to mean place of rest in the Dakota language. Oh, okay. And as they move North, they're heading towards their summer home. And like one of the other things people talk about with like the Sioux and the Dakota, as they kind of get into that misnomer is that like, they will talk about them not practicing agriculture, but they had all sorts of like, they definitely grew corn. They look at corn as the origination site of where they started corn-based agriculture. They stored crops in different ways that we know from different like texts. There's a missionary named Samuel Pond who in the 1830s lived among the Dakota. But as the Dakota leave, they're, I think about it as like they're fleeing towards their summer home on Spirit Lake. Okay. Where you think about like Spirit Lake was abundant in fish resources waterfowl resources. I mean, I mentioned earlier, the guy shot 5,000 ducks in one fall. Yeah. Like if you were going to try to eat, that might be a place to try to do it. Mm -hmm. And as they go up the river, there's some like minor conflicts as they're making their way towards Spirit Lake following the Big Sioux or the Little Sioux, excuse me. Um, they're following Little Sioux River up towards there. And like they do break into some cabins. They steal some more guns. There's some conflicts with some settlers, but nothing like extreme. Mm. It's not until they get to Spirit Lake that widespread violence breaks out, which is always interesting to me. And yeah. this is one of the things that, like, as I've thought about this more and more, first, I mean, on a, like, meta level, you're thinking about it like, well, Ink Padu has watched the world change completely around him. He's just gone through this, like, people kicking him out as they're going north, according to... Uh, all sorts of different accounts. One of his grandchildren starves to death as they're fleeing Smithland, going to Spirit Lake. And like, I don't have kids, but I can imagine that's got to be like something that would oh, push yeah. you towards this tipping point. Oh, There's yeah. also a conflict at Gillette's Grove where allegedly two settlers attack them and like... There's violent conflict there. The records are really, really murky okay. as it relates to that. So it's like I'm, I'm still not willing to cop to like exactly what happened there. Yeah. But so, so they are moving from Smithland. Are they trying to come to Spirit Lake to stay there? Oh, that's my assumption. That, okay, okay. So the settlers are there and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, we don't want you guys here. Well, and so like that's where it's like, one of the things that always stood out to me, and as I looked more into the evidence of like, this is where Ink Peruda was spending big parts of the year, is like, as they get there, when they had left, there weren't settlers there. When they get back, oh. there are. It's like somebody moved into your house while you were gone. Oh. And one of the things that we can see in Abby's book, which is really difficult, because so Abby Gardner Sharp writes a book like decades after this happens, which like, I can't imagine what it was like to be Abby Gardner Sharp. She lived through incredible, she watched her whole family killed in front of her. She was undoubtedly like raped, captured, 
imprisoned, eventually ransomed back, and then spent the rest of her life like preserving the memory of this thing that happened to her. And she wrote the book about it years later, which is understandably from her perspective yeah. and doesn't make like the Dakota look great. It oh. makes them look incredibly evil. Yeah. I mean, that's a word she uses consistently throughout it. And I think that's understandable. Mm-hmm. What doesn't make sense to me is why we would use that as the only source to understand this event. But even in her account, when she's talking about it and they show up, it's really consistent with like the Dakota show up and they ask for things like there's a tribute part of culture and this is broader than even indigenous cultures, but it's very distinct to the Dakota where they like show up and ask for like food. Mm. And like Abby says, well, we fed him and then they came back and asked for more food and then they just shot my dad in the back. And like, it's an oversimplified version of what happens. We'll never know what happened in that cabin. But the part that stands out to me is like, they came asking for food. The gardeners were also like bordering on starvation themselves. Yeah. Roland Gardner that morning on March 8th was hitching up his wagon to try to go to Fort Dodge, which I have walked from Fort Dodge to Spirit Lake. That's a ways. And we're talking about like 12 foot deep snow. Snow, yeah. Like especially in the low, like there's no roads yet. Yeah. There's like, there's no way, like how desperate you would have to be to be hitching up those horses to go and do that. Tells me like he didn't have anything to give the Dakota. And this is where like when I talk about it's like a bad situation and bad timing and also a lot of big historical events coming to the head in one place where somebody eventually pulls the trigger inside that cabin. And Ink Paduta at some point makes the decision that we're going to our only option left is we're gonna kill everybody. Oh wow. And they do. Thirty thirty three people? Thirty five. So it kind of depends on where you like put the dates and how you're counting people. Also the government, like nobody's entirely sure how many people are in the lakes at that point in time. Cause it's like the very edge of the frontier. There's no newspaper, you know, like people are out there. I've gotten as many as like 35, 36 on counts. And then they kind of flee, right? They take these women hostages and they leave. And as they do that, one of the things that happens. those, Those is 33, 35 was all the settlers who got killed. Right. Okay. We have no records of like native people that would have been killed in the conflict. As they flee, he gets in a huge fight with his sons, which is another thing that is really interesting to me about it, where he basically tells them like, we can't go back. They're like, no, we've like now won. And he's like, no, we're, we're never going to be able to go back. Like that's closed to us. Now we got to start a new life. So they were trying to go back to Smithland. Well, like to Iowa. Okay. His sons went like, we've now been through this we should be able to go back, you know, like we, yeah. we won. This is how military conflict works. Yep. And instead they stay West. Like Inquiduta never is taken to account for this. And he continues to reject American power as he did his entire life. He moves out to the Dakotas. He fights at the battle. Well, he's old. He was at the battle, little bighorn. I don't know what his role is in the like events, but he's there and then he leaves with Sitting Bull after they destroy Custer's Calvary at the Little Bighorn, and they flee to Canada, and he eventually dies in Canada, free from American rule, continuing to live life in the most traditional way possible. It's an incredibly sad story, but it's also like, I do think one of the legacies is that like we've written the Dakota out of the story of Iowa history, mm. and we got to fix it. Yeah. Why did we do that? Because of, because I think of the violence, violence. like that's what, 
And so like, maybe that's me going a bridge too far, Yeah. but like, I can tell you, like I have spent the time thinking about this and you just go like, well, why do, does nobody know when like the records, all the evidence is overwhelming Yeah. that the Dakota, Inc. Paduta, Sidomanaduta, Umpashota, all these other Dakota leaders of bands of what is called the Wapakute Dakota of the Sioux live throughout North Iowa in numbers. Every like early settler account talks about them. They're here. Yeah. But then if you go to Forest City and you ask somebody why their high school is like, like what native peoples live there, or why their high school is the Indians, they can't tell you. I've asked, I've asked seniors in high school to take my class 10 years in a row. None of them know. Or you go out to like uh, Heritage Park of North Iowa, they have 5,000 arrowheads on display. And you go like, what native people lived here? And they're like, native people didn't really live here. They were just passing through. And you go like, that's a lot of arrowheads to drop. Like if you're just rolling through the yeah. neighborhood. And I think like part of it, like it's not just the events of Spirit Lake. We've minimized indigenous stories within the American narrative traditionally because yeah. it's uncomfortable. Oh yeah. And it's ugly. Yeah. And it's just a tough it's, thing it's, to it's, like it's, spend it's, time yeah. with. It's easier to not confront no, the difficult yep, things yep, in life. Yeah. And then I think also the Dakota, it's easier to look at like the Meskwaki and the Sauk who are actually ancestral to like Michigan. Um, And that's a whole nother story for another time, but it's like they're being pushed West as more population pressure. And these frontiers are playing out in other parts of the country, but it's like, we can look at all these different stories and it's like, well, what's the, it it just seems like it's so ambiguous and it doesn't need to be as ambiguous as it is. And I can say that as like, I've just done the research and looked at it. So where where did they end up? Where did he end up? Who's that? In Kaduta? Yeah, after he left. Ended up in Canada. Um, So they left initially and went out. um, So if you think about what people commonly call the Sioux, there's the Dakota in the east, there's the Yankton or Yanktoni in the middle, like the Red River Valley of the like Dakotas. And then there's the Lakota further west, which a lot of people are familiar with because like of some of their leaders like Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse and some of these people that are big indigenous figures of, they call themselves the Ocheti Sakawin. Uh, Western culture usually will refer to them as the Sioux. But they, um, he's going to stay uh, west with those people, uh, other parts of this broader tribal group, and continue to live life largely how he had lived before, I mean, it's different. You're in a little bit different location, but you're with people that you're biologically related to, speak the same language, mm-hmm. have similar life ways. And then they continue, like, this frontier keeps moving west, like these frontiers. And as they show up, it's really kind of interesting to see that he, again, the next major point of violence on the frontier, or one of the future points of violence, is in 1876, the Battle of Little Bighorn, where we see the entire 7th Cavalry under George Armstrong Custer killed at the Battle of Little Bighorn, and Ink Perut is there. Oh, wow. He's continued to just, like, stay beyond this frontier, living life in a traditional way with his people. And then after that battle, it's similar to what we see after they flee Iowa following Spirit Lake. He leaves with Sitting Bull, and they cross the border into Canada, and he eventually dies there. Wow. Outside of American jurisdiction. Is it fair to say that Ink Paduta, he just wanted the American government to leave him alone? I do think that'd be fair to say. Okay. That this is my space. Just leave me alone. You 
go somewhere else. And I think it's like, yeah, I mean, that's, you think about, one of the things that is really hard for me to see is somebody that grew up in the United States, in the public school system, trained at a land-grant university to study history, is thinking about, like, the Dakota people that Inkpadut is leading, their government and their way of life is as legitimate as our own. Mm. And, if you, and if you have that perspective, then it's not even him saying, like, leave us alone. He's saying, like, we have a right to exist and to yeah. our culture that we've developed over hundreds, if not thousands of years, and this is where we live, and this is our territory. For you pushing us out, you technically declare war with another government. And that's like, it's one of the things to consider is that like, these are sovereign and autonomous peoples. Yeah. Like these are nations onto their own right. And it's so hard for people to see that, that have been kind of like, we're so conditioned in the United States to go like, well, you know, they, they were just tribes. They were just tribes. They were just chiefs. They yeah. were just, they didn't really, you know, they didn't really have an economy or they didn't really have agricultural practices so they didn't really have culture and life ways and that's all just like yeah so wildly inaccurate that it's that's interesting because those chiefs were just almost like a president of that those tribes i think about it like it's a it's a different system but that doesn't make it invalid that's one of the things that i i've thought about with this a lot is that like you just because your system looks different doesn't mean it doesn't have legitimacy. That's true. And that's where, like, when I think about, we get so caught up into some of these stories and so much of the stuff where it's like, when I think about, like, because I hate to, like, get into, like, semantics and language and stuff like that, but it really matters because when you can give legitimacy to some of these things that'll make people think about it in ways that go, like, there's not a huge difference between thinking about the Dakota people as a state in the same way that we think about Iowa as a state, thinking about Inkpaduta as an important political leader mm -hmm. that's trying to make the best decisions for his people in the same way our elected officials are, yeah. and trying to create the best way to live life in a place where it's really difficult to survive. Yeah. And when we can set that lens aside of like our own experiences, our own perspectives, our own biases towards our own government, our own culture, I think it's easier to see where like I've spent, yeah, probably like years and years of my life thinking about Spirit Lake and I don't feel any better about it. I feel really sad for what happened there. I have incredible mm -hmm. grief over what happened to the Dakota people. I have incredible grief over what happened to Abby Gardner Sharp and her family. Yeah. And it's one of those sites that I think like, one of the things I'm really encouraged out there is they're working really hard at telling that story in a more nuanced way that will hopefully make that a site where the next time you go visit it, you'll be able to go and see interpretation that will help people understand how just all the way around, this isn't a good versus evil story. This isn't a bad native people, bloodthirsty. Like William Bradford, who's the chronicler of the Mayflower, um, that the pilgrims come across the Atlantic on, you know, like he started using the word savages and it stuck. 
And he was talking about this land that's inhabited by less than people that are savages, little more than beasts. Oh. And it's like, and that's how people like still wrote about Ingpeduta. Mm. It's how people will still talk about native people today where it's like, it's also really important to not lock our indigenous communities into these stories just in the past. Yeah. Like these are vibrant, vibrant parts of our communities today True. that are incredibly resilient. And we need to continue to like lift up, appreciate, understand their perspectives and cultural nuances, and then like give them the tools or like it gives the wrong word. We need to restore the tools to these people that were unjustly taken from yeah. them to let them exercise some of the self-determination that like has been taken from them through this like overwhelming transition that took place here. Wow. You make me think about something I never thought about before. Yes. They had their own government. Basically they were running their own thing. And when you go there, you're trying to push them out. You basically overthrown their government and they have the rights to defend themselves. And they absolutely looked at themselves as having, this is one of the reasons why like treaties and like that era is so endlessly fascinating to me. And I think so important for us to understand through like a, a new lens. We've been conditioned to not look at these peoples as being legitimate, Yeah. but they saw themselves as legitimate. They, and absolutely like you can see this like, and eventually, so one of the things I've avoided consciously from a career arc is like, I came out of my dissertation I could have written a book about this and I will soon. Like yeah. again, if I'm right. Interesting. But when I've looked at this across Iowa and I think there's a lot more nuance to understand where it's like, you can see this in the sock. You can see this in the Meskwaki. You can see this with the Bahoe or Iowa. You can see this in the Winnebago Ho-Chunk. You can see this with all these different peoples, these frontiers act upon them. And you can also see that they had legitimacy mm-hmm. in their governments that it's so wild now, like, cause I remember when I first had that like epiphany, like, Oh yeah, yeah. These are just like people that obviously value what they, what they had <laughs> going on. Yeah. We have diplomatic relations with other countries and you can see this globally. Africa yeah. is an incredible example of this because partially just because of the story of like imperialism, colonialism, obscuring African history also in ways that it also like, we don't think about our American story as being imperialist a lot of the time, Mm -hmm. but like it's still just spreading empire across the continent. And in the same way that it takes place in Africa and and that's where we can see those. You can also see this like in the steppe, like Mongolia, where we have like nomadic peoples, like think about like Genghis Khan or um, like that are these Western civilization, we call them warlords because we're, again, trying to create illegitimacy in their type of government. But they are exercising a political economic system that looks different from ours, but those people were easily as powerful as other leaders. Like, Genghis Khan was the most powerful man on earth at one point in time. And, like, when you start to think about this, this is what, like, whether it's thinking about things in the context of, like, human rights or just thinking about empathizing with other people or what the most powerful gift I think history has to offer is the more you get to know someone, the greater empathy you're going to have yes, for them. True. And so like the more you can put yourself into somebody's shoes, like I don't know when it happened for me, but at some point I was like something switched with me with think Peruta where I went like, oh, I can see why he would be do what he did. Yeah. And, yeah. and that doesn't create like, I mean like killing 36 people or yeah. like, 
is you don't you are not justify what he did, but uh, you can see why. Yeah, and then you can understand the complexities of it, and yeah. then you can actually learn. Because if you're like blinding yourself intentionally to certain parts of stories, mm-hmm. you're going to miss what's actually happening. We can look even today. We're going around the world to overthrow not the government because we think they're illegitimate governments because they're not like our government. Well, and that's where like modern geopolitical situations and and when I think about some of this stuff and try to like, as a historian, I always take a very long view of things because that's what I've been trained to do. It's like, and I always try to just zoom out and then try to think about I try to zoom out and zoom in, I guess, simultaneously. I try to zoom out and see what the big currents are that are at play. Like whether you want to look at the situation in Israel, Palestine, or Russia and Ukraine, or even like other potential hotspots globally like China and Taiwan, they'll tie into longer conflicts that have been going on for hundreds or at least like at least decades, if not centuries, Mm -hmm. if not longer periods of time. You have to zoom out and understand those things. And then you have to zoom in and put yourself in the position of all the different people. Like you can empathize a mother in Israel and you can empathize with a Palestinian mother and understand that like, I don't have the answers. And like, whenever you do that, then it's like, I think you get a better understanding of, well, like, well, that's not the right answer. Like you can better see the wrong options Mm -hmm. that I think can move us towards better options in the future. Yeah. Yeah, that's the the key word there, empathy. I mean, that's because you got to like, put yourself in somebody else's shoes. We talk about my students get really frustrated. So in my class, uh, in my lower level classes, like if you're taking like history two hundred one or two hundred two, like the broad U.S. history classes to and from eighteen seventy seven, we practice six skills all semester to guide us because you know I'm letting them have a lot of freedom yeah. when I kind of let them pick their own topics and do their own things. But they also have to use these skills. And so we use six skills, which are historical significance, um, historical agency, which are how people influence the past. We talk about uh, evaluating evidence, which we break into like subcategory or whatever. We talk about continuity and change, progress and decline. And then we talk about the last skill we always work on is empathy and moral judgment. Mm. And even the smartest ones, they get so mad because when they go to take their final exam, we're like three weeks from finals, they're going to get there and they're going to get to that last page and they'll be killing you know, they have like done all the work they prepared. I know I give them exactly what they need to be prepared to just like ball out and do great on their final exam. But I can promise you, I will not give them all the points in the empathy section. Mm. And they get so frustrated, but that's the lesson. Yeah. Because like you can want to empathize as bad as you want. I feel for Abby Gardner Sharp. I feel for Roland Gardner. I feel for Ink Peduta. I feel for his children. I feel for like his descendants today. I'll never know what it's like to be them. I can try and that's going to be a good exercise Mm -hmm. and that's going to be good for me to better understand their situation. But you can never fully put yourself in somebody else's shoes and know what it's like to be them, but we got to try. Yeah. So how did Abby Gardner ended up being the only survivor? So like part of this is, uh, consistent with maybe broader indigenous cultures, which one of the things that we also do in American society is like we try to create like all native peoples did things in certain ways. A lot of native peoples would take captives and then incorporate them into their tribes. So this consistently in interactions between different native groups um, where like 
Sacagawea that goes on Lewis and Clark expedition. She's mm. captured. She's a Shoshone woman, woman captured by the Hidatsa and then brought into their tribe. This is very common in conflicts along indigenous frontiers where like if my wife gets killed in a raid, I might go seek revenge, yeah. take a woman captive and replace my wife with the woman that's taken captive. Abby and several other women are going to be captured while the violence of Spirit Lake is happening. And then they're taken west. Two of the women are killed while they're going west. One, I mean, they're both kind of brutal and it's a longer story, but both of them run into issues, whether it's related to health or physical status, and they're killed by the Dakota because they're slowing down the band that's trying to, like, get Get, away from this. Spirit, uh, right. Yeah. And so Abby and this other woman are eventually going to be ransomed. Well, so Inquiduta sells them to uh, a, Yankton, a Yanktoni man um, once they get out to, like, the Dakotas. And then the governor of Minnesota Territory ransoms them back from the man Inquiduta sold them to. And so then Abby returns. One of her other sisters was uh, fortunately just not there. Um, while it was happening, she was visiting someone else and managed to survive uh, the attack. And she first lives with her, and then she eventually ends up back in Spirit Lake. She uh, fights to get her father's land back. She eventually buys the site where the cabin's at and then really dedicates her life to telling this story so people won't forget what happens to her family. I mean, she runs a tourist attraction at the site. She, uh, You've been there. There's a large monument there that's yeah. put up by the Iowa legislature that she petitions for the money for Okay, um, to honor both like her family and the rescue expedition from Fort Ridgely yeah. um, and the settlers from Fort Dodge that came to try to uh, help. And then there's, she's also buried there. Um, oh, there's like a that. small family cemetery. Um, but she spent her life uh, working to preserve that memory of the event. Cause it's one of those things that like, could have if if it wouldn't have been for her, I don't think we'd be here talking about it. It'd be like an oh. obscure thing in Iowa history. I mean, that's probably not true. It was it was a it was a hugely impactful event, but I think people would remember it differently if it wasn't for her, like taking yeah. that initiative. I can't imagine what it was like for her to return there. You know, like yeah, or even to write about it. Well, and she waited for a long time. It was like forty yeah. years. Like before she wrote about it, which is one of the other things that like, I'm not trying to like discredit like the validity of her experience, but it's also like, it's hard. If I, if I try to write about something that happened to me 15 years ago when I was in high school right now, like in college, I know it would be murky and probably inaccurate. You think about it was decades before she wrote her book. And that's one of the other things like, I do think a traumatic experience like that, both probably like burned certain things into her memory in a way yeah. that was very visceral, but it also probably distorted her memory of the events yeah. also, which is one of the challenges I've been trying to work through with this. Yeah. And there's certain things that, that happen in our life. We want to forget about it. Well, yeah. And I mean, like what she lived like through is beyond. Yeah. Man, Professor Kevin Mason, I appreciate your time, sir. Anytime. Appreciate what I, you're doing. I, this was good. Thanks, Eric. I right, thank you.